Um, I mentioned Don earlier. I want to let you know when Don's service is. It is this Thursday at noon. It'll be here. Uh, there'll be a light lunch that will follow. Kids, we got to hear a letter from Peterson a little earlier. Uh, we're going to bring the Peterson jar up here, and then we're going to pray for him, and then you guys can be dismissed. JJ, go ahead and bring that jar on up. Okay, come on up. Let's uh, take the lid off. There you go. All right. Hey, what do you think we should pray for Peterson about? You got any ideas? JJ. Any ideas? Well, let's just let's pray for him, okay? Let's pray for Peterson, and then we'll let you go. Jesus, thank you for our friend Peterson. Thank you that we get to uh, help care for some of his basic needs. Lord, thank you for the letter that he sent us. It is fun to be able to hear about pumpkin soup and new jeans and Christmas programs. I pray that you would bless him today, and may we as a church continue to uh, reach beyond our own walls. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You got some money. JJ is right over there. Oh, you got some too? All right. And we've got Miss Heather is following. Miss Heather, you guys follow Miss Heather. She's going to take you guys downstairs for Children's Church. Yeah? We're going to start this morning off once they are gone with a video. But we don't want you to miss this. This is a very important video. We don't want you to miss it. So we're going to let the kids go ahead and go. First, JJ, thank you so much for doing that. Looks good. Nathan, are we ready? Men can still be involved in the church. They just don't need to be ordained. The children's ministry is always in need of male leadership. Some men are handsome. They could be too distracting for us on Sunday. They're too emotional to be priests or pastors. Go to a March Madness game and tell me I'm wrong. Male pastors who have children might be distracted by the responsibility of being a parent. Jesus was betrayed by a man. How can men be trusted to lead? About once a month, male pastors get really cranky. Men are still vitally important to the life of the church. I mean, they could sweep sidewalks or repair the church roof. They could even lead worship on Father's Day. So yeah, we hear stuff like this all the time. All the time. But it's 2016. So don't be that guy. Support women in the church. Well, I heard one amen and a few people are squirming kind of uncomfortably thinking, did he really show that in church? Kind of an appropriate video, considering what we have been studying the last several weeks. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 to 15. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there with me. This is a section uh, where the emphasis has been women leadership. Women in leadership. When I was in high school, my mom got elected as the executive committee chairman of the North American branch of Wycliffe Bible Translators. Now, for our Wycliffe people here, that'd be the EC chairman of the NAB. Make sense? No? Well, that's because the NAB no longer exists. Well, anyways, she got that, that meant that for her, she was the chair of the board of an of organization that oversaw 70-plus field teams doing Bible translation in the U.S. and Canada. 
And she served in that role from 1996 to 2000. After her election, a man who also served on that same board came up to my dad and he said, I'm going to be praying for you. My dad says, why? Your wife's serving in a role that's not natural. Women should not lead. Hmm. My mom later asked this guy how he got over that, how he got past that, because he was serving on the same board that she was, and he said he got around it because her role was not a spiritual leadership role. To that, I say hogwash. Apparently, my mom did such a good job in that role that in 2000, she was elected as the director of the North American branch as she served there for eight more years. She did a great job, fantastic job. See, God had gifted her in leadership, and she was not going to squash that gifting. This past Tuesday, I called my mom. I'd never told her this before, and I told her, Mom, remember when you got elected to that position back when I was in high school? I, I struggled with that. So I don't know why I did. I didn't search the scriptures to find my biblical justification for the inner unrest, and I didn't talk to anybody about it. But see, as a high school kid, I read the Bible very literally. And I had read 1 Timothy 2, and I took it at face value. I took it at face value. Now, 20 years later, I've done some in-depth study on women in leadership, and I'm glad that I no longer struggle. I remember one time in high school, I woke up, and, and I was okay. I don't know why, but I was okay with mom leading. I saw that she was doing a good job. So uh, the course of from there to now, I've, I've completely swung. As you can tell from where I landed last week, I am in support of women in leadership. I think women can and should lead in the church. Now, sometimes I think we do a disservice to certain biblical texts by taking them at face value by taking them literally. And we wrap up a section today where it's going to be one of those texts, where we read it and think, really? We should pray before we dive in. Lord God, as we prayed last week, uh, we want to be able to hear from you this morning. We recognize that what we're studying is a controversial text. It could be taken uh, multiple different ways, and uh, we could land on those different ways biblically. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning hear what you want us to hear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. We're going to read the entire text. Paul says, And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair, or by wearing gold, or pearls, or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Let a woman learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Wow, right? 
I read that section in its entirety to show us that we're looking at three verses today, verses 13 to 15, that are part of a bigger section where Paul is addressing women, that is part of a bigger section where Paul is addressing uh, church order for worship, that is part of a bigger section where Paul is addressing, um, he's addressing heresy in the church and false teachers. This morning, we look at the last three verses in that section. And I want to ask us, as we look at this, should we take it at face value? So again, verses 13 to 15. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So should we take that at face value? I mean, Paul did write in his second letter to Timothy an often quoted verse. He said, all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses Scripture to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Paul said that. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 2 is in our scripture, so we should believe it, right? We should take it at face value. Remember, Paul was writing a letter to Timothy, and he didn't know, nor did I think he intend, that this letter become scripture. When he said all scripture, he wasn't referencing the letter that he was writing. So I don't, that is questionable. At this point, to say, use the second letter to justify the first letter, especially with something that is questionable. Donovan's smiling at me back there. He's wondering, where are you going to go with this, James? Let's take a look and see what we should take at face value. And we'll go through it verse by verse. Verse 13, for God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. Seems accurate enough, right? Go ahead and turn, uh, flip back to the beginning of your Bible and uh, open to Genesis chapter 2. God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. Let's see what our story tells us. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into his, into his nostrils and the man became a living person. Okay, God created Adam so far, so good. Verse 15, same, same chapter. Then God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may eat freely the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will surely die. Okay, so God told the man, don't eat from that tree. So did Adam go home and tell his wife what God had told him? Well, his wife hadn't been created yet we got to keep going to get to that. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, so I'll make a helper who is just right for him. In verses 19 and 20, it talks about uh, God forming all the wild animals and the birds and the livestock and bringing them to Adam, and Adam names them, and that's a process that God is hoping to find a helper for Adam in. But the end of verse 20 says, but there was still no helper just right for him. So we continue in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. 
Then the Lord made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called, whoa, man. Sorry, emphasis on the wrong syllable. She will be called woman because she was taken from a man. Adam exclaimed, at last, wow, holy cow, Lord, look what you made. And do you think as he was standing there looking at Eve in all her glory, do you think he remembered to tell her not to eat from the tree? Yeah. I don't know. He may have. He may not have. Back to our timeline. We are asking the question, was Adam created before Eve? According to the story we have, it looks like that. So we're going to take 1 Timothy 2, 13 at face value. Let's continue. Verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. Take it at face value. Let's go back to our story. Now in chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Well, of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. So apparently at some point Adam did pass on that message. Well, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Seems to be what Paul was telling Timothy, right? It was Eve's fault, wasn't it? Why didn't Paul keep going? You keep going in verse 6. The, the woman was convinced. She saw the tree. It was beautiful. Its fruit was delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. She took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. In case you didn't know, Adam was there. The picture before just shows Eve. This one shows Adam. He was there. And if Adam was there and God told him directly that he couldn't eat from that tree, couldn't we at least claim it was his fault or partially his fault? The apostle Paul blamed him in a different place. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and 18, Paul says this, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. So is he contradicting himself? He tells Timothy it was Eve's fault. He tells the church in Rome it was Adam's fault. Do we want to take verse 14 at face value? Let's keep going. Verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing. Assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Women are saved through childbirth. Women are saved through childbirth. Take that at face value. Take it literally. What about the young girls whose lives are tragically ended before they reach childbearing age? What about the women who never marry and thus never have children? What about all the women who struggle with infertility? Does that mean that God won't save them? 
Hey, if you don't have a kid, sorry, you're out. Would God really do that? Did Paul really think that? Here's the problem with that part of, of, uh, of the verse being taken at face value. In Paul's other letters, as well as other places in the New, in the New Testament, it's very evident that Paul believes we are not saved by something we do. And childbirth would fall into that something we do category. Let me show you. When Paul and Barnabas came before the Christian council in Jerusalem, see, they had been having great success to their ministry with the Gentiles. There was question as to whether or not their ministry fell within the bounds of this new faith. There were Pharisees who still strongly believed that the new Gentile believers must be circumcised to be saved. So our text tells us this, Acts chapter 15, verse 6 and following. It says, The apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among, from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way, by the undeserved grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch the end? Peter believes that we're all saved the same way. He didn't say that men were saved by God's grace and women were saved by childbearing. He said we are all saved by the undeserved grace of Christ. Now, Paul later proclaimed this very same message to a letter he sent to the church in Rome. Romans 3.23, we know this. Everyone has sinned and falls short of God's glorious standard. If you jump down to verse 27, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we're made right with God through faith and not obeying the law. Do you think Paul is trying to drive home a point here? Verse 29, after all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jew or Gentile. We're saved through faith. Didn't we sing a song about this? Faith is the victory. Now, Paul also wrote this same message to the church in Ephesus, to the Ephesian church. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we know this. God saved you by his grace through faith. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation's not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. We're saved by grace through faith. Did he tell these other churches that we've been saved by bearing a child? That your salvation was a reward for the good things, birth, that you had done? No. This saved by, grace, saved by grace through faith is a foundational point for Christians. If we're going to argue over the majors and the minors, this is a major that you want to draw a line in the sand about. If we're saved by works, one of those works being childbirth, then we're all toast. Yes, 
If we're saved by works, then we're all toast. But if we're saved by grace through faith, then there's hope for all of us, even women, even women who don't have children. Can we take this passage at face value? Look closely, and for some of you it might mean a little closer than others, at the word childbearing in your Bible. Is there an asterisk next to it? Or is it only in my Bible? Because if it's only in mine, I'm going to have to get a different one to preach out of. Okay, good. we got at least one other asterisk. Now, the asterisk in there, it points to the finer print at the bottom of the page. Oftentimes, if there's a discrepancy in the ancient texts or in the way that the original translators translated the ancient texts, there'll be an asterisk. And in the fine print, you get alternative ways that that could also be translated. Now, these alternative ways go back to the original text. So it's not just some random translators grasping at whimsical ideas. These are based out of findings in the historical writings. So I want to share the asterisks in my Bible. Right next to, but a woman will be saved by childbirth. Here's the asterisk down at the bottom. It says, a woman will be saved by childbirth or, could be translated as, will be saved by accepting their role as mothers. Or, could also be translated, will be saved by, ex- by the birth of the child, with the child having a capital C. I'm going to come back to the first one. First, the second one. Women will be saved by the birth of a child. If it's a capital C, it's referencing Christ. This is actually how the International Standard Version and God's Word translations translate this verse. And a a well-known commentator, William Barclay, he's a conservative guy, he writes this. He said, It may be that Paul means that women will be saved, as all others will, by this supreme act of childbearing by which the Son of God was born into the world. So 1 Timothy 2.15 could be a beautiful reference to Jesus himself brought into the world by Mary through childbirth. It could fit. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And Mary will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Of course, that child grew up and Peter speaks of him in Acts chapter 4. says there's salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So saved by this child who grew up. Romans chapter 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation. Due in part to the fact that at one point Mary had a baby named Jesus. You see how 1 Timothy 2.15 could be read like that? It actually makes sense, and it's a beautiful flashback of Mary birthing a child that would ultimately save women and all of humanity. So is that what Paul meant for us to get out of this verse? Or could he have been addressing something else? What if this entire section, verses 13 to 15, actually deals with false teachings that he has been trying to address so often already? When you look at the Greek word for childbirth, it's actually on the back of your bulletin on the little outline. I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I'll pronounce it wrong. Um, But that Greek word could be translated as childbirth, or it could be translated as the rearing of a family, the raising of a family. This takes me back to the other 
asterisks, where it says women will be saved by accepting their role as mothers. Of course, that still puts us in a lurch to, to women who don't have a family. But if, if Paul meant not childbirth, but the rearing of a family, many scholars think he would have been addressing the Gnostic heresies that were going on back then. I've spoke of these before. Uh, I've mentioned the New Roman Woman movement that was going on in Ephesus. So women there in Ephesus were being encouraged to become their own women to become independent, to make their own way. They may have listened to Destiny's Child. All you women, independent, throw your hands up at me. Six of you got that. The other six, just bear with me. This new Roman woman movement was all about independence. And having children takes away that independence. Because no longer can you focus just on yourself. You have to focus on another little one. You have to take care of their needs. So the women in Ephesus with this new Roman woman movement were pushing back. They were saying, hey, that traditional role is not for us, nor in the Jewish culture or in the Greek culture. We don't want that. Studies actually show that they experimented with all sorts of different kinds of birth control, including abortion. Many did whatever it took not to have kids. So Paul may have been addressing Look, you'll be saved through that traditional role. He may have been directly addressing this heresy. Follow me for a second. Or as uh, Elizabeth said, okay, pay attention. Okay, if you're daydreaming, come back for a little bit. If Paul is addressing these Gnostic heresies in verse 13, 14, and 15, it actually allows us to read them differently. Verse 13, it says, Adam was created first. Now, to us, it's like, well, duh, Genesis says that. But there, it was common a belief, and it was a widely held belief among the Gnostic heretics that Eve was actually created first. That's what they thought. Now, this teaching could have been seeping into the church, so Paul wants to address it. Verse 13, God made Adam first, and then he created Eve. Go on to verse 14. Gnostics and the proto-Gnostic mythology, they really elevated Eve. You know, because the, the temple of Artemis, the, the woman god in that city, they elevated Eve. They said she was the spiritual, the superior spiritual person in that pair. She had the spiritual knowledge. And because she had the higher knowledge, there's no way the Gnostics thought that she would have ever been tricked. She was smarter than that. So what does Paul say? Paul addresses that. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but Satan. The woman, or who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived. Paul could be addressing that Gnostic heresy head on. What's interesting is Paul's word choice here when he talks about deceived. The word is escapateo. It means thoroughly, intensely, completely deceived. It means biting at the bait that the hook brings. It means hoodwinked, that word. So Paul, in verses 13 and 14, he's saying, look, I'm going to address your heresy. Adam was actually born first, and I'm also going to address the fact that you think Eve couldn't be deceived. I'm going to use a word that shows you she was completely suckered. She took the whole thing and bought it. If we continued on with this idea that Paul would be addressing the Gnostic heresies, 
then it makes it a little bit easier to swallow that he would be saying women are saved through the birth of a child or through traditional roles that you guys are kicking against. That makes sense? Still kind of a little bit of rub. So what do we do with this? We're looking at three verses and asking if we should take them at face value. We've seen how maybe all three of them could have been Paul addressing a heresy that he talks about multiple times in this letter, looking bigger picture. Tells, tells, uh, he tells Timothy, stop the false teachers. So we're looking at those three as potential refutation against this heresy. That's great for back then, but what do we do with it? What do we take away with it? Well, after hearing me talk for the last 20, 25 minutes, are you ready to go out and debate anybody that has issues with this? Scott's ready. Everybody else is like, no. Okay? And, and it's okay if you're not. Because my point in standing up here and telling you all this stuff isn't to get you ready to debate. I don't want refutation to be your takeaway. I actually want today, the last half of verse 15, to be your takeaway. I mean, and it's easy to miss this. Because if you look at verses 9 through 15a, hotly debated. You're going to get arguments on both sides to where then you miss the end. The end says this. It says, women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they, or assuming she, continues to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Now, I'm not going to be nitpicky and say that, okay, women, you got to be faithful and modest or self-controlled and you got to have faith and love. I think that Paul was addressing everybody here, whatever your gender. So I want to say our takeaway today is if you, uh, you need to ask yourself, are you seeking to follow Christ? And if you are, is your life showing these four character traits? Modesty or self-control, it's sophron. We have looked at this word several times in Titus and a couple of times already in 1 Timothy. It means to carry your life in a way where you have all, area of it, all areas of it under control, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Are you living that way? Now, Paul also mentions faith and love. Continue living like this, he says. Now, we could, if you hear those words together and you think of the Apostle Paul, you may think, well, this ties into the 13th chapter of, of Corinthians, where he lists this gift, the, the gifts list, and at the bottom he says, but three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Paul could be tying back to that same idea, or Paul could be pointing just directly back to Jesus himself. Why would I say that? Chapter 1, verse 14 of 1 Timothy. Paul says, Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes from Jesus Christ. So Paul could have been pointing back to Jesus. Salvation through Him. And he gives us this faith and love. Now, if we're looking at the work that Jesus does in us, we need to look at that final word also. That's the word we translate as holiness. The word is hagiosmos, and it means the consecration or sanctification, and the definition is technically the process of making or becoming set apart, sanctified for God. A process. It's a process of a believer being progressively transformed by Jesus into the likeness of Jesus. That's holiness. Being transformed by Christ. 
So at the end of this hotly debated passage, Paul settles in and says, look, self-control, faith, love, holiness. What if, after three weeks of looking at this passage, digging deeply into it, what if we just allowed ourselves to continue to wrestle with the meaning of it? What if we agreed that we may not, not all agree on it? And what if, instead of arguing over it, we simply ask ourselves if, in our lives, do we see self-control, faith, love, and holiness truly taking place? What if we asked, are we truly being transformed into the image of Christ? I mean, even as we study passages like this, do we finish looking, feeling, thinking, loving more like Jesus? Because that's the process of holiness. Becoming more like Christ. We've struggled with this passage. But at the end of it, can we say, I think I'm closer to Christ than I was before we started? I've asked, can we take this passage at face value? I can pretty confidently say that we can take those last four words at face value. Christ wants us to live a life of self-control, faith, love, and holiness that he allows us to do. Wherever you stand on the women in leadership discussion, let's all agree. Let's all agree that whether men or women, we need to be in the process of becoming more like Christ. Because in the end, it doesn't matter if we win an argument about this passage. Paul was clear. Faith is the victory. Amen? Amen. That might be one of the toughest passages in Scripture. I'll preach on it again in 2031. <laughs> I encourage you to come. Let's pray. Lord God, we'll admit to you that sometimes this book that you have given us, this, this compilation of writings, confuses us. Sometimes it looks like an author says one thing here and a different thing there. Sometimes we read words that we don't understand, maybe words that don't fit into our culture. Sometimes we just leave this questioning everything. And yet today, we can be sure that our faith in you is our victory. God, as I've prayed before in the last couple of weeks, uh, may this topic, may this passage not be one that divides us, but one that ultimately points us towards the things that matter, the things where we do draw a line in the sand, the things like us being saved by grace through faith. Us being saved by Christ alone, who was crucified, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed for us. God, those are the things that we want to hold on to this morning. Give us grace with each other as perhaps we go and talk about this series. Give us grace with each other as we don't always agree. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us grace that saves us. We ask that you help grow our faith in that and God, may faith always be our victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.